As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. You know what time it is. That's right. It's listener questions time. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man whose answers to listener questions are as detailed and beautiful as a Wes Anderson movie. It's Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Wow, that's a very nice introduction. And I'm not sure I live up to that billing, but I will take it regardless. I was just uh, looking at renting the French Dispatch on demand, Taylor. It's 20 bucks. Don't do it. No? No good? <laughs> <laughs> haven't been introduced yet so i feel like i can't contribute <laughs> we'll get to you i don't even know anyway. what that movie is so i say go with whatever graham said hi graham hello <laughs> well yeah uh, we might as well introduce him now he's a man who's uh, great at interrupting introductions um he's living on plague island right now where they're canceling premier league games left right and center it's graham ruthman hello graham i mean plague island basically was that wes anderson film with all the dogs i don't know if you've seen that one but uh yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a massive, I'm a massive Wes Anderson fan, but uh, French Dispatch was slightly disappointing to my eye. But save, maybe other people oh. like it. Save my twenty dollars, then, Graham. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, save save it for some uh, like mindless action Godzilla versus Kong or something like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what the what kind of films you watch. It, it, it feels like uh, Joe is maybe the one who deserves our film recommend, recommendations over the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's bring him in. Joseph Lowry, are you here, sir? Hello. I am, yes. Movie, movie, movie. I can engage in this movie conversation too. <laughs> oh, boy. Have you heard of Wes Anderson, Joe? Uh, yes, I have, but I couldn't tell you the first thing about him other than that he's involved with the movies. He's a director, isn't he? Like, on a real note, like, he's a director. The moving pictures. Uh, yeah. he's, uh, Joe, he's an auteur, I'll have okay. you know. Okay. Uh, anyway, let's move on the swiftly thir- from The that. third best Anderson in Hollywood, as we all know, P.T. Anderson being the best. <laughs> and now I'm going to stop talking while Ryan throws things at the microphone. Who's the second? Uh, uh, Paul... Well, there's, oh, no, there's P.T. Anderson. Sorry, oh, I've ruined the joke. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say Paul W.S. Anderson, the Resident Evil director. I see. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Um, you know what else is interesting, gents? I noticed on the Twitters today, um, if you go to the Emirates Stadium, 
Graham, I'll ask you. If you wanted mm-hmm. to get a double cheeseburger and fries... Oh, I know the answer. The <laughs> did you see it's 18 pounds and yes, 5 pence? Uh, that, that equates, Graham, to 24 US dollars at current exchange rate for a burger and fries. The worst thing is you have to watch Arsenal while you're eating it as well. Yeah. London, eh? What a place. What and a and, place. I, and uh, I noticed on the sign it said only £3.75 for chips, for fries. £3.75 and you're only getting fries. In Scotland, you're getting at least two mutton and brown sauce pies oh. for £3.75. <laughs> and you're getting a Bovril for that. The food poisoning's free. Taylor, what do you think? <laughs> would you pay for a, a, a $24 for a cheeseburger and fries at the Edinburgh's? Uh No, I would not. Uh, I had that privilege at Yankee Stadium and turned it down as well. I don't... Really, like, I'm not that stingy when it comes to stadium food, but that does feel above and beyond, and I would never pay anything for Bovril. Now, recently learning what that is, no thank you. Oh, dear. I, my, um, one of my experiences at Yankee Stadium, I went to see a baseball game in the day on a weekday once. Uh, it was very warm, and I had some of those $12 Bud Heavies, which, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they were pretty expensive. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, why don't we move on to some listener questions? That's what we all came here for, gents. Let's start off with Richard Rolson, who says, Jose Mourinho was once a really great manager and would honestly be talked about in conversations about the greatest manager. True, true. Yet after watching him manage Spurs and now Roma, it's hard to square him against being a great manager. Why has Jose completely lost the ability to be a top football manager? And do you think Roma will be his last top Job. Mm, Taylor Rocco, eight league titles, two Champions Leagues, a Europa League, a treble with Inter Milan. I actually mm-hmm. went to um, Roma versus Inter a few weeks ago, as I think I mentioned on the show. Uh, the Inter fans had a banner in his honour, uh, and he was coaching the um, home team. So it shows yeah. the regard he is held in, uh, certainly in certain quarters of Milan. So, you know, a lauded manager for sure. But it seems, Taylor, that the general vibe is that soccer's moved away from his style a little bit. He's not very fun to watch. I can certainly attest to that, having watched his Roma, um, and doesn't quite move with the times. Yeah, I, I think that that's last part is the key for me. And I think I'm glad you mentioned Inter Milan, because that would be the kind of club that I think is a turning point for him. I think oftentimes the narrative is soccer's moved on from him, soccer has evolved, and his tactics are sort of outdated. I go the other way, and I feel sort of like he made the conscious decision to go the other way and to not sort of roll with modern tactical shifts. And I think that starts with Inter Milan, because when we talk about Jose, there's always this idea that he's always been very defensive. He's always been this sort of park-the-bus manager, unless we forget he coined the term park-the-bus because he was frustrated by another team doing it, because his Porto team, his uh, first Chelsea team— Pretty pretty aggressive in the way they played that line, would be aggressive in the sort of intensity of their attacking, but I think with Inter, that's where he learned we can be ultra-defensive and frustrate a club like Barcelona, who at the time are kind of rounding into the form that we knew they would round into, and to get that win the way they did, I think it reinforces the idea that defensive tactics can work when Jose is the one doing them. I think that's what he learns. He learns if I can manage the personnel and get everybody on board, then we can continue to persist in this style of play. But I think similar to Drago and Rocky IV, like once he's cut and he's bleeding, you know he's not a machine. Once Jose starts to slip a little bit, I think some of that mask 
just fades and instead you see this temperamental, sometimes very frustrated, sometimes very frustrating man who plays different tactics but oftentimes defaults to more negative ones, to more uh, defensive ones. And I think that doesn't really vibe with modern football and with what the bigger clubs want to play. And I think that sort of explains his, not fall from grace, but I would say downslide in my opinion. Graham, if you think about uh, Mourinho's great teams or some of his best teams, his Chelsea team was pretty attacking. 72 mm-hmm. goals scored in both the winning seasons in 2005-2006. His Madrid side in 2012, 2011-2012, 121 goals and 100 points, a record in La Liga. So is it a bit of a misnomer to say he's too defensive and can't manage attacking soccer? I think I agree with everything that Taylor said there. That the, the Taylor team was a re- uh, the Taylor team, sorry, the Inter team. <laughs> I'll take that. Was, I'll take that. <laughs> the Inter team was a, a real kind of inflection point for Mourinho. And I think back to that famous Champions League semi final at the Camp Nou, uh, Pep Guardiola against uh, Jose Mourinho, Inter against Barcelona, and really it was a, a attack versus defence. And I, I feel it feels like Mourinho. He took that and kind of based the second half of his career on those ideas. But you're right, his Real Madrid team that he then went to after Inter, he tried to sort of out-tactics Guardiola at Real Madrid when Guardiola was at Barcelona in his first season and I think his second season as well. And then the third season, he almost just let Real Madrid play. And they they found that they, they, they were a better team than Barcelona that season. At that point, Mourinho should have learned something and, and he didn't. Um, and I just think people talk about, you know, Mourinho as a, they talk about him as, as a tactician in 2021 and how some of his ideas are now an- slightly antiquated. And I think that is true to a certain extent, particularly in the attacking third of the pitch. That's where I think he has been left behind the most because he's always been good at organizing a defense, but he, he frequently lets attackers kind of do their own thing. And I think managers like Klopp and Pep and, uh, Nagelsmann, I guess, in this respect have changed the game and, and Mourinho maybe doesn't do enough with attacking, um, patterns of play and, and and so on but I also think he's lost his superpower of he doesn't seem to know how to get players to fight for him anymore yeah. and and I, I feel like you look back at his great teams you look at the loyalty he got from players like John Terry Frank Lampard Marco Materazzi was sobbing into his shoulder after Mourinho leaves the Bernabeu in, in that tunnel I'm sure you, many listeners have seen the footage of Mourinho leaving the tunnel at the Bernabeu and, and Materazzi is sobbing on his shoulder and it, it just feels like Mourinho can't get that buy-in from players anymore. And there's that I don't really have any solid answers for why that's the case. I think it's probably down to a number of different factors. And maybe I am talking nonsense here, but you know, players in, increasingly have their own teams of agents and representatives, and there's a greater layer of data analysts and coaches between players and managers. And maybe I'm going to sound like a bit of an old man here, but I wonder if social media means Mourinho's old tactic of calling out underperforming players players publicly doesn't work as well you know pre-twitter some hostile comments from Mourinho might have been enough to jolt an underperforming player now though players just need to open their social media accounts to get that so does Mourinho piling on top of that really help again that's just a theory maybe that's nothing at all but it it definitely feels like he has lost that buy-in from his players 
Yeah, uh, Graham, completely agree with you. And I wanted to emphasize, uh, Michael Cox wrote a really good piece when he, uh, Mourinho was sacked by Spurs. Uh, here's a quick uh, two-paragraph uh, pull from that one. The tactical development of football, particularly over the last couple of decades, is about universality, about particular tasks being done collectively. Modern sides press aggressively from the front and play out from the back, meaning defensive play starts with your attackers and attacking play starts in defense. Every concept is a task for the entire side. Mourinho's approach is more old school. He works less than other contemporary managers on prepared attacking possession routines, preferring to allow playmakers to find solutions themselves. In a world of false nines, Mourinho has always liked true strikers such as Didier Drogba, Diego Melito, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He also likes proper defenders that belong in their own box like John Terry, Lucio, and Ricardo Carvalho. And I think that goes to your point, Graham, both like on the tactic side but also on the individual management side. And I think about that Spurs team, for example, having been under the tutelage of uh, Mauricio Pochettino, and we know he is a disciple of Bielsa. There's an intensity to that training, but there's a comprehensiveness to that training. And I think about the All or Nothing documentary. When you see him, Mourinho, clearly trying to instill that fight, and Delia, or it's uh, Eric Dyer has like the kick out on Son in training, and it kind of uh, sparks a little bit of a fracas there. And, and you can just tell that it's not having the intended effect. It's not sort of motivating the squad and kind of getting everybody to be this ruthless, ruthlessly competitive team. And I wonder how much of that is because under Pochettino, there's that same level of intensity, but there's also the comprehensiveness to training. With Mourinho, it's more just kind of everybody be mean to each other and then we'll take it out on the opponent. And I don't think that works as well, at least not these days. Yeah, maybe that's not a very 2021 thing to do in general, Taylor. Joe, um, Mourinho is regarded as a bit of a dinosaur, not a cool badass one like the one that lives in the water in Jurassic World. Uh, That's a movie, by the way, Joe. Um, (laughs) But soccer, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, is cyclical in its nature. So is it possible that it comes back around to the Mourinho style at some point and we abandon all this pressing and fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it it will. It will absolutely do that as teams realize, okay, maybe we shouldn't be stepping so far forward because this team has so much speed to beat us in behind. We'll go ahead and sit a little bit deeper. We've already been through this routine as a soccer world before. So it is going to revert back and teams will stop pressing so much and they'll start to sit a little bit deeper and they'll they'll continue to emphasize hitting on the break. Even the big teams, I think, will start to do those things. But I don't think it's going to be within the span of Jose Mourinho's possible career as a manager. I think it's going to take a little bit longer than he has to coach, then I, I would assume he has to coach. I don't know what that will look like. I don't think this will be his last big job at Roma to get to the end of Richard's question. But I I don't know that he'll go and find another really highly functioning top club that wants to play how he wants to play. I think it's going to take too long for that to happen. I do think he'll get another big job at, at probably a more dysfunctional club at some point because his name recognition and his brand is still really strong in the soccer world. But as far as the tactics go matching up with Jose, I think it's going to take a bit longer. Will that cycle come round by the time that Jose is a USMNT manager for the 2026 World Cup and Cameron Carter Vickers is starting (laughs) at centre-back for him? Oh, Graham is listening to the show even on episodes he's not on. Graham, yes, that's the perfect timing. That's when the cycle will fully hit. Do you do you all? I feel like there is this kind of consensus opinion that he'll transition into international management and then he will have success there as well. <laughs> Increasingly, I feel like that's not as much the case because it does seem like he 
is willing to still talk about his players, and I think on the international level, that just means there are months that will go by with these sound bites sort of like just lingering out there of him criticizing a center back or criticizing an attacker. And I don't think it will benefit him the way other managers who could maybe slow down and just focus on kind of managing the team from game to game. I think there are some who would do well in international management. I'm not sure Mourinho is one, but I am open to being persuaded yeah. otherwise. And, and also, his last few teams, he has very publicly complained about the group of players he has inherited yeah. yep. and and pointing towards the transfer market as his salvation. Yeah, there isn't one of those in international uh, soccer, Jose. So uh, what you inherit is kind of uh, what, what, what you've got. He'll, um, I imagine he'll take the Portugal job surely at some point. Maybe that's his last top job, if we call it that. And it'll just be after Ronaldo retires. So he'll be able to blame everyone else for not being Ronaldo, maybe? <laughs> Convenient. Maybe that's it. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Richard, for that question. We have established that Jose Mourinho is uh, maybe not one of the all-time greats as he was previously. Kenneth Seiden. Hello, Kenneth. Uh, Kenneth asked, what position is the big is uh, is there in world soccer which has the biggest global shortage and or is the hardest for top clubs to acquire a uh, very interesting question from Kenneth here mm, certainly Graham if you're an FPL player a fantasy player it's striker that's always yeah. the hardest spot to fill because there's so few of them and most teams don't play with two of them anymore. And speaking to um, MLS teams who are trying to build their uh, rosters, for example, no names mentioned, but striker is the one that strikes me, no pun intended, as the one that, the spot that's maybe the hardest to fill, if not a global shortage. Yeah, well, in FPL, they don't make it easy by the fact that a lot of the strikers in that game, they have classed as midfielders for this season, like Obama, Yang and Salah are in as <laughs> midfielders. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take that question, the question from Kenneth in, in two separate parts. So I'll address the second part first, which is the, the hardest for top clubs to acquire, I think is almost always strikers, as, as you say, Ryan, you know, they are the... The most expensive. You look at the the most expensive players in history. They're all they're almost always attacking players, if not strikers. You know, goal scoring wide forwards or assist making wide forwards. People that can make make a very clear attacking output on the pitch. Um, and so, yes, yeah, stri- it's always strikers. Teams are always on the lookout for people who can put the ball in the back of the net I think I said that about the USMNT in last week's listener questions the thing that that means uh, I would not be so hot on their Premier League chances in the hypothetical world that they were in the Premier League was the fact they don't have a 15 goal a season striker at Premier League level so I think that's a, a correct observation um, there the the first part what position is there a global shortage of a few years ago it seemed to be fullbacks there was a big shortage of uh, fullbacks at elite level then coaches realised they could just start putting wingers and uh, James Milner in that position and that was the end of uh, that shortage but in all seriousness I think the spread of back threes and wing backs did seem to force managers to think a little bit differently about how they could use midfielders and wide players as wing backs so I tried to quantify an answer to this question using the Ballon d'Or voting which is probably a bad thing to do let's face it but it was (laughs) maybe the only ranking of the best players in the world that I could could think of Um, there was only one goalkeeper this year and that was uh, Donnarumma in the top 29 places and that backs up what my anecdotal answer was going to be is goalkeepers Um, it's a bit of a cliche that you don't win anything without a good goalkeeper but I think there seems to be some truth to that and I thought if I, w- I was going through all the top goalkeeper, the top clubs, sorry, in the world right now. And how many goalkeepers would you say are totally bulletproof at this moment in time? How many would you trust with your life? I would say Courtois right now, for me, is probably the best goalkeeper in the world. 
Oblak and Ter Stegen have made huge mistakes this season. Some would say Emmanuel Neuer, but I'm always nervous he's just going to amble out to the halfway line for no particularly good reason. Donnarumma, perhaps, but he's struggling to get in the PSG team. I would have said Edward Mendy until recently, but the ghost of the London Stadium is still haunting him. The Alison Becker has been shaky in recent matches. Hugo Lloris, nope. Ederson, yeah, okay, he's maybe one right now. De Gea's in good form, but had a bad season last season, so I'm not quite over that. Over to Italy, Handanovic, uh, he's been decent, but I'm still not taking him. Uh, Magnon has made a good start at AC Milan, and then Chesney, don't make me laugh about him. So, yeah, there, it feels like th- there's not a great deal of true world-class goalkeepers to go around all the top clubs at the moment. All right, uh, the two positions I had written on my notes were striker and goalkeeper. Uh, Taylor, anything else you've got? Uh, that those would be the first two that I had as well, and especially looking at like Man City when they were cycling through goalkeepers trying to find them, find one that would work, and they end up with a Darrison. Same thing for Liverpool. I think we've seen a number of clubs kind of rotate through keepers really quickly trying to find that world-class one, so I had uh, goalkeeper on there. I had striker on there. The only other one I think about like players that we sort of focus on as being world-class or very unique in what they do. And oftentimes I feel like I hear, oh, they just needed N'Golo Kante. They just need a Kante-like player. And I think about world-class holding midfielders who can do the defensive job, but still also facilitate attacking play and complete those passes laterally and backwards, but also key forward and through the lines. And I think N'Golo Kante is a pretty rare one there. So I also think of like holding midfielders who can play the ball. That's probably on my list as well. I'm right there with you with the number six discussion. You know, you always hear they need a Conte. Well, that's because at that time, maybe they don't have someone who can do that mobility. But then you get a Conte and then you you lose out on valuable passing skills and and passing range. So it ends up being this trade-off. And I think there's such a a limited number of players who can do both of those things, to your point. So that's, that's absolutely one on my list. I do still have just generally left-footed players in this discussion. I know that's not a particular position, but I was reading some studies that were assessing the footedness, the shoot, Taylor, someone reached out to us on Twitter with the right word for this. I said, uh, I said foot pedestrious. That wasn't it. I don't don't remember what it was. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. I'm just going to pretend like it is. Uh, Someone reached out to us about that word because I was talking about how, you know, those players are hugely valuable or maybe there's a lack of those players. There's still a lack of left-footed players in soccer. From the things I read, only somewhere between 10% and 25% of, of pro players are left footed. And for coaches that want width from their left back, especially, I think I know Graham kind of kind of talked about fullbacks and dismissed that. And I think it is fair to set that one aside a bit now in a modern sense. But historically, and in the last 10 years or so, getting a real left back on that side has been a challenge to the point where even now a lot of the top left backs, quote unquote, in the world are right-footed. Jao Cancelo, you think about uh, him with Manchester City, you think about the Euros with uh, with Mala, and I believe Spinazzolo was right-footed on that side for Italy at the, the early stages of that tournament. So left-backs as well, and then in Major League Soccer, I wanted to look a little bit more specifically. I think you just look at the talent pool right now. Goalkeepers, as we've already mentioned, are a, a bit limited, and there aren't a ton of really high-level shot stoppers in MLS outside of guys like Matt Turner and Andre Blake and a few others. And then wingers, weirdly. I know I know this isn't really answering Kenneth's question because I don't think it's a global shortage at all. Wingers might be the deepest area across the world, but for some reason in MLS right now, they're just not. I, I was trying to come up with a list of really high-level wingers in Major League Soccer, and I think it's at a low point right now compared to what it's been at any point maybe in the last five years. So that's another spot that I think is is a bit low, at least in American soccer. Good stuff. Thank you, Kenneth, for the question. We'll be right back with more after this break. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are taking your listener questions. By the way, Kenneth Seiden, who asked the previous question, also added a note. He's saying, listen to the weekend review. He had to yell at his speaker because Fire Truck of Lawyers is a Simpsons reference. How did Ryan Bailey forget that, he asks. I didn't forget, Kenneth. 95%, no, 99% of my references come from The Simpsons. Don't you worry about that. And meanwhile, <laughs> I think we have to have the fire truck of lawyers on standby for this next question oh from Cigar Shuramajiri. Thank you very much, Cigar, for this one. How prevalent is match fixing in soccer? Yeah, lawyers, take note. And who is in charge of governing or policing? It is, is it the national federations, leagues, or FIFA, or confederations, and so on? Is match fixing something more prevalent in lower leagues and competitions versus the big leagues. Uh, according to Europol, which I found out is like the European equivalent of Interpol, less than 1% of football matches are suspected to have been fixed. On average, say Europol, one out of every 10 players will be approached during their career to fix a match. Oh boy. And soccer is by far the most targeted sport by international organised crime. Uh, I'll come to you first, Graham Rutherford. Where did your research take you here? Yeah, so I, I um, looked into who is in charge of, of governing or policing. So while the, the leagues and confederations would certainly take an interest in match, match fixing and monitoring it, and I found a number of confederation-led um, investigations, when it comes to genuine you know, investigations, they tend to be criminal investigations. And so the police of that country would be involved. You mentioned, uh, Europol there. I also found that, that report. Um, and there's a good series on Netflix called Bad Sport. And one of the episodes is about, uh, Calciopoli. Um, it's called Football Gate. That's what the episode's called in Bad Sport, which obviously is what Calciopoli translates as. And uh, it's all about the police investigation that was led into uh, Luciano Moggi, who was the sporting director at Juventus at that time and who the, how, who the whole um, Calciopoli scandal revolved around and all the match fixing that was happening at, at that time at the top of Italian soccer. And that gives you a good idea of how a criminal investigation like that one is led and how the collected a lot of the evidence and how a lot of it was down to phone tapping and kind of working out what was happening through that. So I would suggest that if you're interested in, in how 
match fixing is policed then that is a, a good place to start and i learned a lot from that episode of of bad sport on netflix yeah start once you finish this episode of course graham um yeah that's the, the, the best advice and now Couchopoly and sort of the higher profile match fixing cases we've heard of and maybe even jude bellingham um mentioning felix via the referee uh, a couple weeks ago after their classica who was um who allegedly accepted a bribe uh about 15 years ago yet still gets to referee at the, the highest level those Taylor are the cases we hear about I suspect there are many at lower league level that we do not hear about and according to FIFA Pro match fixers prefer to target matches where the risk of being caught is smaller in lower league competitions less media coverage less spectators less people to find them out and these players will in turn have lower salaries say FIFA Pro makes them easier to approach and they could be more susceptible for this kind of business but there's probably a lot that happens that we don't know about Taylor yeah. Uh, first of all, I enjoy that you and I have read the same sources because I have some of the exact same quotes that you have pulled. <laughs> but I appreciate you mentioning uh, Felix Vire there because he would be an example of exactly what you're talking about. Though he sort of gets talked about in relation to that Bayern Dortmund game, the match fixing that he was uh, banned for for six months for taking a bribe was in a two Bundesliga, a five Bundesliga game. You do usually get it in the lower leagues where you're less likely to attract attention because there are just fewer people who are going to be paying attention. Whereas with the Premier League, if there's sort of a betting abnormality consistently with one club, it's going to be noticed very quickly versus a third division German team or a second division Finnish team. There's probably going to be fewer eyes and fewer interests. So you might be able to kind of get away with it longer. And so I think you are going to get a lot more of it in those lower lower divisions because those players are making more or less money, have less access. So when they're approached by somebody offering them fifty thousand pounds, that might be two years' wages for a player, or just a significantly sizable amount to have uh, coming in all all at once. So I think where there is more appeal is where there is more need. So I think I read a lot about players who have addiction issues. Their dealers might then inform people who would then kind of get in, in touch with them as a way to facilitate some sort of insidery betting uh, habits. And, and that is what tends to happen and how it tends to get discovered is via consistent betting abnormalities. One thing I read about was a company tracking throw-ins because with prop bets, you can bet on anything. I guess that would be the difference between match fixing and spot fixing when you're just fixing certain parts of a game in the game. And there was one team that kept having, or their opponent kept having too many throw-ins, like above what was expected for a normal game. And it turned out that there was a player who was just putting the ball out of bounds because that was a bet that they could make. Uh, there was there was just a few more like that where you have these sort of strange outliers of specific moments that tend to indicate something nefarious is happening. So I have actually weirdly been present for two and possibly three high-profile instances of match-fixing. Uh, I'm a Wimbledon fan, as I've mentioned before. We were in the Premier League back in the 90s. Firstly, I'll mention this sort of slightly nefarious one. Um, there was a period during a particular Wimbledon season where every kickoff, Wimbledon would um, pump, uh, pump the ball straight out of touch into the, in the opponent's half. Every single time. And no one could figure out why. 
and I, 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 fire truck of lawyers on standby. But basically, there are prop bets, like you mentioned, Taylor, when as to how soon the ball can go out of touch. And there were some questions asked about that. Uh, another one involving Wimbledon was in 1994. Hans Seegers, who was a Dutch goalkeeper of Wimbledon, along with Bruce Grobelaar at Liverpool and uh, John Fashion, who was a striker at Wimbledon, were accused uh, of match fixing along with a Malaysian businessman. They were all found uh, um, uh, guilty of football, uh, breaching football association um, betting regulations, but were not found guilty in the court of law. So that's all alleged, uh, their behaviour. But one that's not alleged is the strangest example of match fixing that um, I, I can remember. It was in the 1997 season. It was floodlight failure gate, if you will. There were several Premier League games where the floodlights were tampered with. The, the lights went out and the game was abandoned. Um, I, I was at one... Wimbledon played Arsenal. I can remember it very well. It was at Selhurst Park. It was a Monday night game on Sky. Uh, it was 1-1 in the second half. Lights went out and the game had to be abandoned at 1-1. That season also, I went to the first ever game at Pride Park, Derby County Stadium. Derby were 2-1 up in the, fir- in the second half. Lights went out. Uh, there was also a game at Charlton where the same thing happened and a game um, West Ham versus Crystal Palace as well. So there was this four, possibly one more game where the lights went out. And it's come out, and there's an article on The Guardian about this, that it was actually, um, there were men who were representing betting syndicates in the Far East and the triads and that kind of stuff uh, who literally broke into stadiums and tampered with the lights. Uh, there were some who went in under the guise of being Far Eastern stadium businessmen, interested in like discussing security. They were let into certain stadiums, and th- this is wild. Police actually checked like the power rooms in some of these stadiums and found that the wiring had been rigged, allowing the floodlights to be switched on and off using a remote control device. That's a quote from the Guardian, and they found footprints and fingerprints of all these people who were willingly let into the stadium That's... to have a look at the security. They were interested in the security, but not um, quite in the way the Premier League grounds would have hoped. So that was a fairly wild one that maybe not a lot yeah, that's of people some story. know about. And I'd like to see them try and turn off some of the lights at Premier League grounds now. Can you can you imagine them trying to turn off the lights at Wolves that they have before kickoff? Like they, <laughs> they find the lights, now they've got to find the lasers. Oh, goodness me, where's the fog machine? <laughs> Ryan, I read that same story, and I thought it was interesting that they started that way, and then they just ended up finding like groundskeepers and people in the technical side of things that could just do it for them. And it sounded like they would have remote control devices that would trip the breakers. And yeah. so then the light, it wasn't just that lights were being turned off, is that they were like physically incapable of being turned back on, short of going in and finding the right fuse and switching it back on, which is how they would get those games postponed or delayed. The thing that I, I sort of kept going back to, though, was there's all these outliers and there's weird little stories that I think in some ways are like are obviously very interesting or entertaining to a person who doesn't have anything materially invested, but I think also serve to in some ways distract from the larger stuff that, that has me kind of freaked out because I feel like I've read about a number of championship teams that had strange connections to like Far East ownership groups. Uh, I think Bolton was one that, there was a theory, I think their ownership had changed hands via a poker game. And reading again about the way that sort of syndicates will go about gaining uh, like interest in a club uh, via maybe shirt sponsorship, and then part of that deal is, but we do want one of our people on the ground there to kind of oversee day-to-day sponsorship activities, but they are then putting themselves into the club to sort of facilitate control and see what influence they can gain. And it does seem like there's a lot of sort of weird little one-off deals or one-year sponsorships or one-year employment contracts that seem very financially beneficial to the club, but I think serve a purpose of 
allowing betting syndicates to gain a foothold in certain markets that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. I think coronavirus has compounded that with uh, like games being played, but not as much money behind them. And it seems to have drastically impacted other sports where there is already less money to be had. Table tennis is one I heard a lot about being uh, impacted by match fixing. So it does seem like there's a lot of sort of nefarious uh, practices taking root. And I I look forward to different organizations doing what they continue to do to combat that because it it definitely is a weird thing to think about games that we have such an interest in and are so excited by having just outside influences that we can't see controlling what might happen. It does not make me love the game more, put it that way. Did you just bring up table tennis as being a fixable? Yeah. There's a few. Uh, volleyball is another one. Like, pairs volleyball is one where it's it's very easy to get, I guess, because there isn't as much money. Not very easy, but easier since there isn't as much money on hand. People more likely to take uh, large financial uh, gifts, quote-unquote. And even, like, uh, Svelix Weyer, to go back to that one for a moment, the Bayern Dortmund referee, as I understand it from Raphael Honigstein talking about that, it was basically the center official who would end up, I think, serving some time in prison for like running the entire match-fixing syndicate uh, or officiating syndicate, essentially just said something along the lines of like, ah, these teams are pretty physical, like maybe don't put your flag up as much. And, oh, and, you know, as a benefit, as a bonus for that, here's some money. And, like, it wasn't – I don't even think that's Vire's testimony. I think that's what the other official said. And so you can sort of see how – it's not this, here is the money, can, like call this penalty, or here is the money, this team is now going to score an own goal. It's more of just a, like, hey, you know, we don't really want to like, over-influence like over this match. Don't feel like you got to do too much. Oh, and here's a bonus payment for good refereeing. Like, you can see how it, it is a slippery slope into, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll take some money. Uh, maybe that's just my, my ethics on display there, but I can totally understand if you are in a room with this other person who is the center official and is this respected official at that, how you wouldn't quite know what the line is and what is exactly happening if you don't have enough education and training behind you to give you the confidence to say, like, nope, and then report that incident immediately. All right. Thank you, Sagar, for that question, if not a slightly litigious question there. We'll move on to Shreyas Romani, who says, where does Sergio Aguero rank in the list of the best strikers of all time? Could you make the case that after Messi and Maradona, he's the best Argentinian soccer player of all time. Sergio Aguero, of course, retiring this week as we record due to heart problems. He had a tearful goodbye press conference uh, in Spain earlier this week. Um, He made his debut for Manchester City quite famously in August 2011 after a £35 million move from Atletico Madrid. Uh, Did quite well there, scored twice and had an assist in 30 minutes on the field. He scored the most, probably the most famous goal in modern soccer history. Of course, the winner uh, in the 3-2 win over QP on the last day of the 2011-12 season to win Man City their first Premier League title. Boom. 258 goals in his career, five <laughs> Premier League titles, six League Cups and an FA Cup. Graham Rutherham and the Europa League with Atleti as well. Uh, I'd say, Graham, um, to come back to FPL, the greatest FPL player of all time. That's un- that's unimpeachable opinion, surely. Wow, that is a bold claim. Almost as bold as your claim that he scored the, what was it, the, the biggest goal in modern football history, which it may well be, but I had to think through kind of what would be in contention for that accolade. But uh, yeah, he was a, he was a very good FPL uh, asset. And just to to uh, be serious for a second, that watching his farewell at Barcelona earlier this week was, was not good at all. And I've kind of had enough of those tearful farewell uh, at the camp now. I, I, I think we've had enough of those for, for one year. 
Yep, <laughs> agreed on that one. Um, how about his ranking, Graham, on the list of greatest Argentines? Um, Messi, Maradona, I would say, uh, I would agree with Shreya, so go above him. There's two other names I would enter into that conversation. Maybe you agree with at least one of them, one of them being Alfredo Di Stefano, excuse me, mm-hmm. who um, in 1950s won five European Cups around Madrid, very much led that charge into Europe, held goal-scoring records for them for many decades. The other one... How about Gabriel Battistuta, yeah. who uh, dominated in Serie A with Fiorentina? He won a title with Roma, uh, scored hat-tricks in a couple of different World Cups as well. He is the other one. I am I think maybe Aguero edges him for his achievements, but th- those are the ones I put in a conversation. Mm. I, th- I think, to be honest, it depends on what your criteria is. Um, so if it's for achievements in, in the club game, I think Aguero would would have to be in, in that discussion for one of the best Argentinian players behind Messi and, and Maradona. I think you would also have to mention someone like uh, Mascherano, Javier Mascherano, who won the thing that Aguero never got his hands on, the, the Champions League. Um, De Stefano is, is, was on my list as well. However, I think he only made a handful of appearances for Argentina. The vast majority of his international appearances were for Spain, um, Spain mm-hmm. I believe. And he also played for... Chile as well, I think. Yes. Um, which is a bit bizarre, but I guess that was in the days before um, kind of eligibility rules over what national teams you could represent um, at international level. But yes, the Stefano, in terms of his achievements in the club game, one of the greatest of all times. If you're looking at achievements for the national team as well, Batistuta was the name I also had. He was Argentina's all-time top scorer before Messi surpassed him. Also had a very good club career as well but never won the big honours having kind of spent the most of his uh, prime years at Fiorentina who were very good at that time but still never won the Champions League um, and and the big honours as I say. The other name that I I found and and would come to mind would be Mario Kempes who was the top goal scorer for Argentina Argentina at the 1978 World Cup which they won so he would maybe get into the equation on the basis of his achievements for the, for the national team. So yeah, I think it depends on the on the criteria, but we can all agree that Aguero is somewhere in that discussion. He is indeed. Joseph Larry, where do you stand on this discussion? Sergio Aguero, colon, quite good at soccer. Oh yes, that I will firmly say. The rest <laughs> of this, it's a little bit harder to answer, right? I, I think the Argentina discussion you guys have nailed, he's certainly in the conversation for third or top five or somewhere in that region after Messi and Maradona. As far as the greatest strikers of all time, I'm folding on that one completely because I, I just don't think I can properly rank strikers across decades. Maybe you guys can. I don't yeah, think I, that I, I can. Go ahead, Graham. I was just going to say, I find that difficult as well. And I said, I, I could, it's such a broad sample size that I struggle to answer it. So I, I kind of narrowed it. I adapted the question uh, for my own means and kind of narrowed it down to Premier League strikers, which yeah. is maybe where Aguero played his, you know, played his best football was for Manchester City. And I, I would have him right there behind kind of Henri and Shearer. I think he's maybe the, after them, maybe the best the Premier League has seen, in and my I'm, opinion. And I'm glad you narrowed it that way, Grim, because I narrowed it a different way, but maybe between all of us, we'll get down to, to something that will satisfy Shreyas a little bit here. I went into best strikers of the 2010s, uh, and, and that's how I approached this. And for me, there's six that really stand out. Robert Lewandowski, Luis Suarez, Karim Benzema, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and Edson Cavani, and then Sergio Aguero. Not in that order, but those are the six that I'm thinking about here. And I don't I don't really know how I would rank those players. Maybe Cavani on bottom and, and Lewandowski on top. But after that, man, it's it's tricky. So Aguero is certainly in the conversation for me of best striker of the 2010s, uh, best striker of the 2010s. 
And he's he's got to be up there as one of the best strikers of all time. But I don't know that I could conclusively rank him in one spot or another throughout history. Do you think some of the the consternation we're having with like where to put him relates to not knowing a ton about him? I feel like he was never like there was he was married to Maradona's daughter for a while. I don't believe they are anymore. But that was sort of the like anecdote that was always told about him. But aside from that, I don't think of him as being particularly flashy. I don't think of him as being in the spotlight that much. Joe, with a lot of those names you listed, I absolutely do. And Graham, to your point about like even the Premier League uh, strikers that you could put in there. Like, there's so much known about Thierry Henry and Alan Shearer and even somebody like Wayne Rooney that I wonder if Aguero's sort of lower, deliberately lower profile off the pitch is part of the reason why he isn't sort of immediately thought of in that way for his performances on it. And and one of the biggest things there is I, I think he... I think he understands English and probably speaks a good degree of English, yeah. but I, I don't believe he ever gave interviews in English during his time at Manchester City. If he did, they were, you know, quite kind of short interviews. He certainly never gave anything in depth in English. I think, Taylor, to counter that, Leo Messi, surely similar in terms of we know little about his private life and keeps a low profile away from the field. And yet yes, still but he is a brand unto himself. <laughs> like, and, there, and there's the tax evasion charges, there's the issues with leaving Barcelona and his father. Like, I think we know enough about him. He is so high profile that even if we don't know who he is as a person, to some extent I feel like that's a Ronaldo thing of the branding shields them from us knowing who they are aside from the kind of selected stories that we're allowed to hear or people are allowed to talk about or do talk about. And, and Aguero, I just think just doesn't never was that player that would get the sort of marquee branding or if he did it would be part of a group of Man City players like I'm sure there's times when it would be Aguero versus somebody as the kind of marquee matchup but for the most part I think of him as a player who like like think of his definitive goal for a moment put it that way like it is I think of it as Arriving at the exact right moment, it is right foot, it is in step, it is just sort of like expertly finished. It's a, it's like a sniper goal, but from 12 yards out, it, it's not that sort of hey, like mazy dribbling or those long distance lasers. Like it's just sort of, it's, I don't want to say unremarkable, but there's not as many like highlight, highlight moments. Even the goal that you're, you're talking about, Ryan, that is this like well-known goal part of that is is the goal call itself I think it's Martin Tyler with the Aguero like it makes it more iconic and I think that he is in my mind just sort of an underappreciated player because I don't think he gets that level of attention the way say Lewandowski does or Ibrahimovic or Rooney or any number of other names whereas Aguero has I think the best minutes per goal ratio uh, to your point Ryan about him having that fantasy value I think he scored the most goals for any for like a single club in Premier League history, Wayne Rooney second to him by one goal, I believe. So there's lots of accolades, there's lots of records, but I still think he is a somewhat like under the radar or a, a just sort of like a dark horse candidate for like top 10 strikers. A mercurial figure. Needs to be yeah. on TikTok, Taylor. That's what it is. That's it. That's it. Raises profile. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> I mean, I was just I was just looking through. Yeah, I had to double check there. I was Googling while you were speaking. He, he never won the PFA Player of the Year in yeah. the Premier League, which when you look through the, the players that have won that, he, he really should have been in. He's in that sort of company, you know, Eden Hazard, Suarez, Bale, Van Persie, Kante, Salah. You know, Aguero was right up there, and yet he never really seemed to get in the discussion much about those awards. Indeed. Shresh, thank you very much for the question. We'll be having more of these kind of questions in part three. Back soon. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question from Kyle Kinsey with Ralph Ranick now at Manchester United to build the culture. Would Jesse Marsh be the most ideal hire for them? Seems that hiring someone like Poch or Ten Hag would go against the philosophy Ralph will instill at the club. Joseph Lowry, I come to you first. Jesse Marsh, the natural choice for United? I see the logic here from Kyle, and I, I really do see the logic here from Kyle, but I would be hesitant to make this move if I was either party involved here. If I was Manchester United, you probably want someone with more elite-level managerial experience than Jesse Marsh has, right? Two seasons at Red Bull Salzburg, not elite-level, even though he spent time coaching in the Champions League in Europa. They did high Salzburg, though, Joe. That's yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true, Ryan. If this really is a different Manchester United team, and, and maybe they're thinking a little bit more clearly now, I don't know that I would make that move. He's coached, what, three months at, at RB Leipzig, maybe a little bit longer, and then was the first manager hi- fired in the history of that club. So I, I don't know that that's exactly what you're looking for. And if you're Jesse Marsh, if you couldn't get the buy-in from from players for your system at RB Leipzig, at, at Rasenballsport Leipzig, essentially Red Bull, the big brother club are the two clubs that you did have real success. I don't know how confident you would be of buy-in coming from Manchester United, right? Coming from Bruno Fernandes. That feels like a risky move at a time where maybe you're not looking for that move. Maybe I'm just looking at this through Joe Lowry colored glasses and thinking about what I would do in this situation. Jesse Marsh has never done things really the normal way. And that's a big part of what has made him such a good coach. And I still do believe he is a very good coach. But I think there could be too many hurdles here. Add add to all of those things the fact that apparently Marsh and Rangnick don't really have the best relationship at this point. 
I don't know that Rangnick would be going out and looking to handpick Marshes as his permanent replacement. So could it happen? Sure. Could I be wrong about all this? Absolutely. And, and Rangnick could get things humming and Marsh might be the best candidate to continue that work. And they might be able to look at things objectively in that way. And it could work out great. I would be very, very surprised if this happened, though. Uh, firstly, Joe, I want some Joe Lowry colored glasses. I want to be able to see the game like you do. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> uh, thank you for putting that image in my mind. Taylor, where do you go with this question? Um, on, on the one hand, it does seem to be a natural fit and maybe going along with that, Man United don't really know what they're doing. I mean, I, I think the appointment of Ragnick has me f- having more faith in them than I've had in quite some time. Uh, if they did appoint Jesse Marsh as an American, I would enjoy that. But also as an American, I would not enjoy it because I don't think it would go very well. Because looking at the way it went for Leipzig, to Joe's point, there was this sort of you know, backroom conversation that was apparently an open conversation about how his style wasn't really fitting with what the team wanted. They wanted more possession. That wasn't really what he was trying to do or wasn't what he was kind of as familiar with in terms of instilling that identity. And I don't think that would work particularly well for Manchester United, the idea of being a sort of be very hardworking, transition to attack very quickly, don't have a ton of possession. I don't think that's what they're building towards, and I think it would be a... A step in the wrong direction, in my opinion. I think they will probably end up appointing somebody who has familiarity with the style that Rangnick wants to play, but I also don't think Rangnick will be the one choosing his successor. I'm assuming that will be a boardroom conversation with other influences considered. It does still feel to me like Pochettino is the one that they will target and try to bring in because he has the sort of profile in the pedigree behind him or at least more of a proven one at that for Marsh I I do think it would be a mistake to take the Man United job because I think he kind of walks into a lot of the same problems he encountered at Leipzig but with even more pressure and a lot more uncertainty because moving from Salzburg to Leipzig at least he had proven like yeah I can win the Austrian Bundesliga I can make this team continue to play the same style in the same system maybe it will work at Leipzig moving from a place where he was uh, let go into his first season to then move to Manchester United would be a different trajectory and a different sort of vibe with him coming in so I think it would probably make more sense for him to go to uh, like another Austrian team or a lower Bundesliga team and sort of reestablish his bona fides, continue to develop his his overall skill set, and then make another attempt at a bigger club rather than just sort of jump from one to the other. We've seen that fail in the past. Sometimes it can work, but oftentimes it's a, another bridge too far, and I don't want him to make that jump too early. Uh, Graham, seems like it's two no's for Master United so far. Will it be three? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see it happening and I'm not sure it should happen. I remember reading Raphael Honigstein's piece in The Athletic about how the RB Leipzig players were concerned at the lack of tactical teaching from Marsh and I'm not sure that's what United needs at this moment in time, particularly after the Solskjaer era where it seemed they had a group of players who were concerned at the lack of tactical teaching from their manager and they've got Ranyet to kind of br- br- uh, instill some some principles. I, can I ask Taylor about the second half of that question about Pochettino and, or Ten Hag maybe not being a good fit for after Ranyet? Because I, I genuinely don't know, and I mean that genuinely, I don't know what I think about Poch and Ten Hag or or Ten Hag taking over from Ranić, like is that is that a good fit? And obviously, you watch this team more than I do, so 
How, how do you see it going at the end of the season? Would that be against the philosophy of, of Rannick if either of those, either of those guys take over? Uh, I, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would say I'm not like an expert on the philosophy of Rannick, but I don't think it would be that big of a departure. I think like maybe they don't play certain styles in the same way or maybe the, like, the way they want to press or the way they want to set up. Like, like, maybe it's not that 4-2-2-2, but it's, it's more of a 4-3-3, but with high-intensity pressing, I, I think there's plenty of commonality in place the only thing i would say is that like maybe if rangnick does want to cement his identity you appoint somebody who is sort of a disciple of his as opposed to a person who is like an adjacent thinker but i think he is trying to get them into a sort of functional team that has a tactical understanding that someone else can then build on it's not as though he is moving into the sporting director role he's moving into more of the advisory capacity so i think he is a steady the ship presence until we can get somebody in who maybe vibes with his basic ideals if not his exact methodology thank you carl for that question an excellent one at that one more question for today's show gents from craig moyer who says who is this season's most improved player in any league venetius jr seems to have stepped up and has a final product jude bellingham looks to have come on leaps and bounds any others two excellent nominations there from craig taylor i am going to nominate straight off the bat aaron ramsdale um oh that's a good one eight clean sheets with arsenal this season got into the england team massively upped his game since joining arsenal who's he's been player of the month there twice already top that i think the the answer for me is Vinicius Jr. It's in it's in the question, so we're kind of looking at other candidates. Ramsdale, yeah, now I, he's not on the list that I've got, but now that you mention it, yeah, he's he would be right there behind Vinicius because I, to be frank, was not sure he was up to much at all when he signed for Arsenal. I thought it was a waste of whatever they paid from twenty five million pounds or or whatever, and now I think he could be the best English goalkeeper in the Premier League. So that that's a pretty gigantic leap. Taylor. Uh, yeah, I think I've got a few. Uh, some in Europe, some not in Europe. Patrick Schick would be one uh, that probably deserves a shout for his performance. Scotland favourite. Who's that? <laughs> Patrick Schick. <laughs> uh, uh, nine goals last season for Bayer Leverkusen in 29 appearances. 16 goals in 13 appearances this season. That's a better rate of return. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you guys know math, but that's what I would say. Uh, in Italy, Adin Dzeko similarly Maybe it's just the different system and playing for a better team in Inter as opposed to Roma, but the number of goals and the overall quality of his performances, I think his match ratings are significantly higher than they were last season. And then in Major League Soccer, Joe, I I will say two names. I will ask you for your thoughts, but I would say Tejan Buchanan probably deserves to be in that conversation. And Hani Mukhtar for his goals, for his assists, and for his importance for Nashville's attack and everything he meant to them and leading them uh, into a, a a decent playoff run, if not a deep playoff run, I would put them in that conversation too for improved players this season. Yeah, those are both great shots, Taylor. I like both of those a lot. I should have gone deeper into Major League Soccer for this question. I didn't. I, I stuck in Europe for mine, and I, I have a handful here, but I'll, I'll just go for a couple. The first is Christopher Nkunku, who has been a good yeah. player for a long time, uh, but his numbers this year are on a different level. He was really thriving under Jesse Marsh. I expect he'll do the same under Tedesco with Leipzig. Not even halfway into this season, he already has seven goals, which is a career high. And maybe more impressively, he's 10th 
in Europe's big five leagues. This is according to FB Ref. He's 10th in Europe's big five leagues in expected goals plus expected assists per 90. Just one spot behind some Argentinian guy named Lionel Messi. So he is he's doing some really impressive work for Leipzig. Another one I wanted to mention, Jonathan David, Canadian international, scoring at a, at a higher rate than in any past season. Only two goals shy of his goal tally from all of last season in Ligue 1. He's on 11 right now, just two behind, uh, just two behind his 13 from last year. So that's another good shot. I've been really impressed with him every time I've watched Lille and, and pretty much every time I've watched Canada as well. The last one, and, and I don't know how sustainable this is, but if we're talking about improvements, we have to look at production as a big part of that, right? And goals being scored. Juanmi, 28-year-old. I, I was not very familiar with, with this player. 28-year-old striker plays for Real Batiste. Hasn't hit double-digit goals since 2016-17. He's already there this season. He's on 10 goals, which is more than all of his goals combined from the last three seasons in league play. And he's second. He's tied for second in La Liga in goals with Vinicius Jr., just behind Karim Benzema. So between Juanmi, Jonathan David, Christopher Nkunku, the MLS folks you met, I mean, there's there's a lot of, of really good shouts to, as, as an answer to this question. Yeah, well, we're all agreed though that AFC Wimbledon legend Aaron Ramsdale is uh, is the true well, answer. Here. That's why you mentioned him. Yes, <laughs> of course, uh, Graham. A couple more from the Premier League. I'll bounce these off you, Mikel Antonio, who once again mm-hmm. I mentioned in the Premier League previews uh, for the start of the season. I said would have too much weight on his shoulders uh, and wouldn't be able to deliver. Yeah, and- you said he was rubbish. <laughs> yes. Uh, Former AFC Wimbledon non-legend Mike Mikel Antonio, um, uh, who has stepped up very much for West Ham. And how about Rafinha uh, at Leeds, yep. uh, who was pretty good. We saw in the game we reviewed uh, against Chelsea at the weekend. Uh, seems to have stepped up too. Yep, and I, I predicted he would be Leeds' top goalscorer this season in our, in our um, season preview, so I'm, I'm quite chuffed at how that one is panning out. To look at West Ham, um, I'm going to pick a player who was already good, but I think he has taken his game to another level as Declan Rice as well. I, th- I wasn't sure that Rice, even as recently as the summer when he was playing well for England at the Euros, I wasn't sure that he had such a high ceiling as a player, but I think it's fair to say that I have changed my mind on that now. And if it wasn't for Bernardo Silva and Salah, Rice might even be a candidate for player of the year in the Premier League this season. That's how well he is playing. He seems to have added a lot to his game in an attacking sense. He's He's got three goals this season. It's quite common to see him sort of dribbling through the midfield to the edge of the box now and even into the box, which we hadn't really seen from him before. And I think he's going to go for a huge transfer fee next summer. And then the other two that I will quickly mention um, heading to Serie A would be uh, Victor Osimhen who had nine goals in 13 games for Napoli before suffering a eye socket injury which is a slightly unusual one that apparently will keep him out into the new year which is a shame because he was the key man for a Napoli team that had started the season on fire was at the top of Serie A and Osimhen's kind of always always had huge potential going back to his days at uh, Lille but I think that potential is really starting to be realised now. And then the other one I was going to mention, I've mentioned them on the pod before, would be Eder Militao, who I really wasn't sure about as a Real Madrid-level centre-back until this season, but he has really flourished since being given more responsibility in light of um, Ramos going to PSG. Good understanding with David Alaba and centre-back. And, and I think the exciting thing about Militao is I feel like he still hasn't reached his top level. He's getting better with almost, maybe not every match, but every month he's playing this season, he seems to be getting better. So I'm looking forward to seeing where he is by the end of the season. 
Indeed. Some excellent suggestions all round there. Craig, thank you very much for the question. Thank you to everybody who submitted your questions. If you want to do so, please go to totalsoccershow.com and fill in the form. One more thing to note before we head off, gents. Uh, Michael Hastings Black, a regular question submitter, uh, just uh, chimed in with not a question, but just a heads up that in honour of Daryl, all of his sales for the rest of 2021 are getting donated to Richmond Conexiones, which I believe, Taylor, is a non-profit in your area. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It is indeed. It uh, serves the primarily uh, Latinx community in Richmond's South Side. Uh, it basically gives kids a uh, way to play, get equipment uh, in kind of safe areas and get some coaching and some training. And it's a pretty wonderful program that I know Daryl would have uh, loved and appreciated. And then uh, Dustin, their uh, organizer founder, uh, won the Daryl Grove Community Outreach Award from the CVSA this year. So it's a good way to honor both Dustin and Daryl. Wonderful stuff. Michael, thank you so much for that. And Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contribs on this episode once again. Ray, I got you, buddy. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always. Oh, thank you, Ryan. And Graham Ruthven, wonderful stuff. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, listener. We'll be back soon. Bye!